We're going to be studying the book of Daniel this morning. Please pray with me as we prepare our hearts to look into the word of God. Lord, Heavenly Father, we gather because you have called us out of the domain of darkness into the presence of your glorious light by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would continue your work in us through this study so that we would be edified to understand who you are more deeply and the truths that you reveal through this book. Give us all wisdom as we seek to understand the things here and allow us the humility and the power to be shaped by these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll start off with a question. What biblical principles would you use to encourage a believer who is going through difficult times? There's lots of right answers here, so... Have them read the book of Daniel. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Cut to the chase. (laughs) Okay, so many of us maybe could have seen that coming, but... Uh, I think we'll see throughout scripture that a common answer to this question is that um, you want to help them with truths that will allow them to understand the fullness of the circumstances they're in and all of the, the deeper realities behind what's going on currently. And then beyond that, the hope of future promises of God. These are are common ways in which the Bible uses to encourage us in the midst of difficulties. And we even see this coming out uh, in uh, the book of Thessalonians that Brother Ness is preaching on, where there Paul talks to um, the, the Thessalonians and encourages them about their faith and the current situation, even despite their suffering. And then closes the book with an encouragement about the day to come, the coming of Christ. And so this is a a common way in which the Bible would seek to encourage believers, is that we could properly and biblically understand our present circumstances, and that we would also understand the future promises. This same idea is worked out in the book of Daniel, where you have one section that reveals the the deeper realities behind the present circumstances, and then another section that lays out a plan for future hope. And so this book is written to be an encouragement, a support to people in the times of suffering. <clears throat> We're studying the book of Daniel this morning, for those of you who recently joined us. Um, So the book is written by Daniel. Um, Jesus attributes it to him. And there are many factors in the book that can give us confidence about that fact. The latter section of the book is written in the first person, while the first section of the book is a collection of narratives. Daniel's name means God is my judge or... (coughs) refers simply means the judgment of God. With Hebrew, it, it could mean um, both of them or, or one, of the, one or the other. <clears throat> and it's a, a fitting name for a man who's going through some of these circumstances where 
when <clears throat> placed up against a um, pagan rule, you know, this sinful kingship, and commanded to fall down to idols or obey these different things, Daniel refuses to obey evil edicts and instead submits himself to the judgment of God, obeying him rather than man. Daniel is of royal blood. It's not clear what exactly his connection to the royal family is, but he is a member of the royal family. He's from the kingdom of Judah, which if we remember at that time in Israel, there were two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which was Judah, and had Jerusalem in it. <clears throat> he is a prophet of God. That means he is a man appointed by God to speak to the people of God on behalf of God. And in, in this particular case, he is also appointed to give prophecies about the future and about coming events. He is taken into Babylonian captivity um, in the days before the fall of Jerusalem, when Babylon comes and attacks Judah. And quite wonderfully, he is called by God a man greatly beloved. Um, and it's just cool to realize that we share that same status. There's another expression, maybe they don't refer to it, but he, they speak of Daniel as one who has an excellent spirit in him. Yes. I don't know if you caught that, but yeah. excellent spirit in him. Mm-hmm. Multiple times he's referred to as having that, and even by people who are not... Jewish, you know, by by pagan rulers who recognize the the wisdom that God has given him. This man has an excellent spirit, um, and we we actually have this same sweet status of Daniel, where he is a man greatly beloved. When we realize that Jesus in John fifteen thirteen says, "A man, no greater love." Yes, then that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Christ has done for us. So we could call ourselves men and women greatly beloved, just like uh, Daniel is called. This book is written during the time of um, the exile in Babylon. Um, Leading up to the events in this book, there's the time of the two kingdoms in Israel, um, where Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and taken away. Babylon comes, assaults Judah. God delivers Judah for a time under Hezekiah. And then later on, Babylon comes in and sacks Judah, taking away the the last of the Israelites into captivity. Um, Then it follows a series of kings that um, Daniel serves under during the exile. The first king being Nebuchadnezzar, who is a a great king who refounds the Babylonian Empire and rebuilds a lot of its glory. Um, Following Nebuchadnezzar, there's Belshazzar, who's another Babylonian king 
who's then succeeded by Darius the Mede, and finally Cyrus the Great, who is a, a biblical character we should be quite familiar with. Does anyone remember what Cyrus the Great is famous for doing in the Bible? He told the Israelites they could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and he gave them money. And all kinds of yeah, he's, he's praised greatly in the Bible for that, where he <clears throat> gives an edict allowing the Jews to leave exile and begin rebuilding the temple. <clears throat> this book is divided into two main sections the first section is a series of stories in chapters one through six these are great stories of heroes they are fun to to read in a lot of ways and have quite a lot of dramatic elements to them You have tales of people surviving uh, from lions, people surviving in the midst of great fires. There are are noble heroes standing up against evil kings, and you have court intrigues and politics going on. There's many different ideas that are are played out in here that are are dramatic elements that can make for um, interesting stories. And it's no wonder that a lot of these stories are some of the more well-known stories from the Old Testament. And I encourage you to, in your free time, read these books, these stories, with an eye for the drama. Pay attention to the moments of, of tension and suspense, the way things build up and progress and that there's upsets and twists from what would be naturally expected in the circumstances. And throughout all of them, what you will see is God telling a story of how he is vindicated over the powers of earthly rulers and earthly plans. And that the the greatest powers in the world at this time are nothing compared to the will of God. The second section of this book is a, a collection of prophecy about the future. Chapters 7 through 12 contain many prophecies that stretch from just a few years after the writing of this book to, if I'm understanding them correctly, all the way to the end times. These prophecies are conveyed through a number of uh, dreams with symbolic figures and imaginary ideas, goats with multiple horns and, and these various things to picture the realities that will eventually play out. Um, It's very reminiscent of some of the sections of Revelation where we'll read, where we read about, um, you know, uh, dragons with multiple horns and, and all these different details that are used to depict nations and kings rising up and pursuing different things. I'd 
I'd break Daniel down into having four main themes that recur throughout the book. You have the sovereignty of God and his everlasting nature. You have the pride of kings and their weakness. You have the call to obedience and trust. And you have the loving character of God. These are emphasized over and over through the way the stories are told and portrayed. And then they are further cemented in the prophecies afterwards. Um, and it, it's important that, that we realize not just in, in the stories themselves, but in the grand concept of this book, how the loving character of God is revealed in it. In this book, there are many things that we can't just take out of context and directly apply to us. Um, while I'm not saying these things could never happen again, we aren't given much encouragement to believe that... <coughs> You know, we will be able to survive through blazing infernos or in the, in a den of lions or that if we, if we stick up for religious beliefs that we should expect to be seated at the president's right hand and given great authority in America. You know, these aren't the, the principles that we're meant to take away from this book. And so if we're trying to consider what to take away from this book, we should ask, This very important question of what can these passages show us about our God? This book reveals the character of God in many ways. And in that question, what can this passage show us about the character of God is a great one to leverage in all of your studies of the Bible, Mm -hmm. knowing that the Bible is given to us to show us who God is. So in this, in the writing of this book, we see a picture of God's loving character as he constructs <clears throat> these narratives and compiles them together to give to his people in the midst of their exile and difficulties so that they can understand their circumstances and know their hope for the future. It is a loving God who seeks to encourage his people by revealing himself, his rule, and his plans to his people. And we should be encouraged to know that the same loving God who wrote to his people this book of Daniel still exists and loves us and wants us to be comforted and encouraged. He does not leave his people alone in their suffering. Even in the midst of suffering, they have deserved. He is a loving God. And he writes so that we and so that they may know greater realities than just what they see on the surface. We should be encouraged knowing that we have a loving God. So now that we've laid out some of that background, we're going to work through a brief overview of a number of the stories to see how some of these ideas work themselves out in the book of Daniel. 
In chapter 1, we get the story of Daniel and his friends keeping themselves undefiled from the king's food. The, they are brought into captivity, and likely because of their association with royalty or with the administration of Judah, they are brought into a, a honored position where they are offered the king's food to eat and live off of. But the king's food violates the ceremonial, the, the food laws of Israel. And so Daniel and his friends, seeking to obey God, refuse to partake in it. The rulers of the kings, the, um, the eunuchs who are, are in charge underneath the king, are worried about this, seeing that it will be a grave insult to the king and that they will be um, in great trouble for letting Daniel and his friends do this. Daniel says that, <clears throat> asks that they would allow themselves to prove that if they, they do not eat the king's food, it will not bring um, any trouble onto the, the eunuch's heads. And so they, they test them for 10 days where they eat, um, just vegetables and other foods that are, are acceptable. And instead of appearing weak and thin, which may cause issues to, to arise, they are even stronger than those who are living off of the king's food. This shows <clears throat> that they can remain undefiled from the food and God will strengthen them to allow them to not fall into disgrace and condemnation in the king's court. And this is God showing that he is the one sovereign over these events, that if they entrust themselves to him, they will not fall. They could have looked at these circumstances and said, well, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, you know, we, you know, we're not in a circumstance where we're free to, to, you know, eat with our own restrictions. So we just have to bow to the king and listen to what he commands. But instead they say, stay true to their faith, even when they have seen so many things befall the great nation of Israel. And this is a, an example to the people of Israel who would read this, that God upholds those who obey him. That our first concern is not with, with living out pragmatic ideas to find the most efficient way to survive and prosper in this life, but rather to entrust ourselves in obedience to God and allow him to make us stand. In chapter 3, we get a story of Nebuchadnezzar building a great golden idol of himself and demanding that all people in the nation come and bow down to it and worship. There is <clears throat> the 
Daniel and his friends refuse to worship at the feet of this idol, (coughs) knowing that the idol is no God and that God commands them to worship no other God than Yahweh. They refuse this decree of the king. In response, the punishment is levied against them, that they are to be thrown into a blazing fire, into a flaming furnace that is stoked so hot. We, if we look in chapter 3, we, uh, verse 15, we can see what the king's command, what the king's statement, sorry, starting in verse 14, the king's statement to these men who refuse to listen to his edict. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You see the pride of the king, you know, thinking that no God is capable to overturn his edicts. He looks at the fact that he has conquered a great many nations who all have their own gods and taken them into captivity. And with this, he inflates himself, thinking that no god stands before his power, and therefore all should worship him. But look at the, the, the gutsy response of these men who are being tested to disobey God and abandon their faith. Under threat of death, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What a, you know, if only we had that confidence and that boldness, that we were resting so strongly on the sovereignty of God over everything that happens, that his rule stands forever, that when people test us, we say, I have no need to answer you in this matter because I am not subject to you, but subject to the Lord. But so that God may be vindicated, they say, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What an incredible example of a believer's obedience to God in the face of great difficulty. Answer a fool according to his folly. Reminds me of a great story that I've probably told before, but when the the Germans had, well, uh, this was just before Dunkirk, and the Germans had the, the English army right there on the beach and they were ready to annihilate him. 
And the guys in the, in the English Army sent a message back, back to England and said, you know, we need to be rescued. But if not, mm. and that was the end of the message. And, of course, the, uh, the great uh, rescue operation went into effect. But and back then, you know, <laughs> we've lost so much because everybody really understood more or less what that meant. They pre referred to this. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's cool. Mm. Yeah. That shows us, I think it's a good lesson for us too uh, in our understanding of the sovereignty of God that we mm-hmm. can't manipulate God. You know, mm-hmm. I like this attitude here that. If it's God's will for us to be saved out of these circumstances, so be it. Yeah. If not, so be it. Mm. God will do whatever He chooses, but we trust in Him no matter what. Because there's so much demands that a lot of Christians are putting on God, like He must do this, and you know, storming heaven and, and getting basically what you want or you want it your way. But I, I, just, I just think this is an outstanding example of yeah. a submission to the will of the Lord be done. And a, a completely rejects prosperity gospel ideals that God will will do whatever we we want for us if we just believe strongly enough you know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego have no idea of this sort of God who is captive to their wills and their desires but instead they believe in a God that they are to entrust themselves to in obedience no matter what the circumstances are. And that sometimes that will even end in their demise and God will be glorified in it. You know, Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a sacrificial offering upon the drink offering of your faith, you know, he a, a willingness to give of ourselves in obedience to God, even to the very end. Yeah, I mean, um, sometimes I wonder if the uh, Reformed revival, that not my words, but MacArthur's and uh, Stoll's, uh, Packer's words, uh, in the sense that that is the counterbalance that God has sown. Uh, because of the corrosive nature of the uh, word prosper, prosperity gospel has been, it's infiltrated so many. It's, it's not just your prosperity preacher uh, in a prosperity church, but that doctrine has been sown into other churches, good churches even. And uh, I wonder if this is uh, part of God's design. Because if we don't get, uh, you know, if, we, if our knowledge isn't that God is so powerful, he may even appear for a while as our enemy because of historical circumstances to which we find ourselves in, then we will not fully respond appropriately yeah. to those historical <clears throat> places in our time. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of uh, Joshua who says, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, where it's like, the circumstances be what they will. Yes. I'm concerned with obedience. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned with trusting in God. Um, I was thinking, uh, David says in Chronicles, um, when the, the angel was killing all the people on the yeah. threshing floor of Oren, and he says, what shall we offer to God that has cost us nothing? Mm-hmm. I thought about that for a while. Yeah. Mm. What do we offer to God? Oh, thanks, God. Yeah. So... 
these men resting in God offer themselves up not in obedience to this great King Nebuchadnezzar, but in obedience to the King of Kings, God. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 19, his face was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (coughs) And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning, fiery furnace. So uh, a flame so hot that even those tasked with tossing people (coughs) in it are perishing in proximity. You know, that's, that's the drama building up, you know, the stoked seven times, the urgency, this burning wrath. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered, And said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Amen. Preach that, brother. He saves to that fire at the judgment seat of Christ, too. And Christ is right there in the midst of the fire and the flames with us. That is... This image is ultimately fulfilled on the cross where the way in which we pass through through flaming and fiery wrath is with Christ on the cross right there in the midst of the suffering. I hope it's, it's obvious to you as we read this how these themes are being so clearly portrayed that God is sovereign. And unlike these kings, he is everlasting and unchanging. His, his power endures. And that the pride of these kings is absolute folly because they are weak to bring about what they desire to see pass. They trust in the strength of their arms, thinking that they have the capacity to do whatever they will as if they are gods themselves. And yet when they desire to see three men killed, they are entirely unable to counter God's will for them. And we get in this a great example of obedience and trust. And we see that God's loving character is with his people always. In chapter 5, we get an interesting story of Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar is the the next king in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. And he is at table feasting with a thousand of his lords. It is decadent and sumptuous and 
luxurious. In that feast, in his pride and his arrogance, he has someone fetch the golden cuffs that were in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And as a testament to his own greatness and the greatness of his kingdom, he wants to drink and enjoy his feast out of them as an insult to the God who he, his people conquered. But we see what is the result of this foolish pride. <clears throat> as a ghostly hand comes in the midst of the feast, inscribes words on the wall. This is, is, I, I really enjoy this story myself. I, I, I think it's great. Um, they scribe these words on the wall and everyone is looking at them entirely unable to decipher the meaning of these words. They're confused and they're searching for someone to interpret it so that they might understand what is the, the nature of this strange occurrence. And they have Daniel brought to them, a man with an excellent spirit. And he explains in chapter 5, verse 24, <clears throat> what the meaning of all of this is. He says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Meany, meany, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of, of the matter, and it, it's so cutting. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What a, a summary statement from God that this king of a great nation has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. If the king himself is found wanting, what hope is there for any man in his own power to be righteous before God, to, to be weighed in the balance and found sufficient? Even the, the great men of the land cannot in all of their wealth and their pomp and their circumstance measure up to God in any way, shape, or form. And this is true of us if in our pride we think that we are something. Look at the labors of my hands and the things I've accomplished with my my years, surely I deserve praise and surely I don't have to bow myself down to a God who doesn't even prove to me that he exists. It's folly. Man is but a vapor and his days will pass away. And we see it captured in here as, as even a great king is weighed and measured and found wanting. That the kingdom of man is divided and given over to other men. Over and over. Because none of us are like the everlasting God. Who establishes his rules forever. The pride of kings falls. And we are called in the midst of this to obey.
we get one of the the most famous stories in chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, where wise men being jealous of Daniel and his prosperity in the kingdom plot and convince the king to make a decree that for, I believe it's 60 days, no one is to worship or pray to any god but the king. Daniel, of course, knowing the sinfulness of such a command, refuses. And it says that he continues, as was his practice, to pray facing the window. That's a good example of maybe how we need to stand in America against some of the things that are going to come our way and we can't conceive. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so Daniel 6.10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went up to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. There's so much in that. He specifically does it where it's possible for others to see him. He is not ashamed of his faith, even knowing it could bring the punishment of death upon him. His his objection to the evils of this land is to be uncompromisingly and obviously loving and serving God. I think it's so striking that it says, as he has done previously... You know, some of us may may see the world going astray and we may think, okay, you know, now I need to get serious about things and step up and show my faith. You know, but that's that's that that's such a, a poor example of what the believer's life should look like. Part of what should happen is our candle, our light is burning and blazing, and as the world gets darker around us it becomes more and more obvious that we are unlike those in the world. This isn't some new practice that Daniel picked up just to object to the edict. This is Daniel continuing faithfulness that persisted from before and will continue after because he is not resting himself on fickle changing government but on God who is everlasting. And so thereby his actions are unchanging in the same way. So Daniel, because of the king's decree, is gathered up and thrown into the lion's den to be eaten, viciously mauled. I'm a a young guy, you know, somewhat fit, somewhat active. You know, I, I... probably could take a couple of animals in a fight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of animals, you know? So <laughs> I'm good for about 20 hamsters. I had a woodchuck in my <laughs> And I went out there, and I figured usually they'd take off, and they try to get in their hole, but this one turned around and he just stood there. I, but you know, if, if I was forced to fight for my life, I may be injured by a woodchuck, but I do not expect that it would kill me. 
mouse was ready to, to attack me. I've got some interesting It's got big, nasty, pointy teeth. <laughs> The bunny's dynamite. Oh, no, 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 no. Stop it, stop it. Stop it, stop it. All right. But uh, I think all of us should, should obviously see that we're hopeless to fight off a den of hungry lions. And yet the next morning they, they look back into the den and Daniel has survived. Because God has preserved him. The power of the king is thwarted. His decrees do not last. But God's decrees last. And every bit of what he says comes to pass. It's just funny that it says that the king was anguished. And he went to the den and called to see if Daniel was still alive. And I wonder if he was up praying all night long for Daniel's safety also. Doesn't it say he was? I thought it said he was. He couldn't sleep. Yeah, he didn't he was up. yeah, and this is a, a testament to some of the ways in which um, God blesses Daniel throughout the book to receive favor in the sight of different authorities. Sometimes the same authority who tries to kill him at one point is praising him in another. But um, I got a feeling Daniel still didn't go up and go up and lay his head on the stomach of the lion. I think he might have chosen the opposite side of the the, the place where we was. Well, I mean, it's I think I overly committed. Myself. It's good for a man of God to stay away from pride. Oh, oh very good. Whoa! He saw you coming. He saw you coming big time. And so we see over and over in these stories, these themes playing out. God is sovereign. Kings are prideful and weak. We should obey and trust him rather than trusting in our own strength or in the strength or rules of man. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that, you know, lions are a serious threat. You know, that should, should make you change your behavior to avoid. But... The, the real answer here is that even things that seem so obviously powerful to rule over us and force our hand are nothing compared to the God who we are called to obey and trust. And ultimately, the love of God is made manifest as he is with his people through thick and thin, guiding them even in their weakness against the strength of man because it is nothing against him. I think it's uh, useful to remember that uh, Satan is called the devil who uh, goes about seeking whom he may devour. It's a roaring lion. Yeah, yeah. It's a roaring lion. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And actually, Jesus himself shut the mouth of lions in the form of men, those who were his persecutors and kings and governors and all of those. He shut them, he stopped them like a lion would stop the mouth of someone who would think he could defeat him. Mm-hmm. Paul says he was delivered from the mouth of the lion yeah. mm-hmm. in 2 Timothy 4. Mm-hmm. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I fought with beasts. Why beast Ephesus? Yeah. 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 And 
we get in Genesis, after Cain kills Abel, God says to him, you know, beware, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You know, that's like a, a picture of a lion or a predatory animal. And who breaks the power of sin? That's Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so to, to touch just a bit on the, the second section of this book, six, chapters 6 through 12, which cover a wide degree of prophecies um, that I'm going to be honest Many of them were a bit beyond my ability to parse through in preparation for this study. Um, you and hundreds and thousands of years of scholarship. <laughs> So there's there's quite a number of things being pictured here, but I, I just want to draw our attention to a few things that are touched on in this. Um, we get a, a promise of the coming of Christ um, in this beautiful section of, about the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, verses 9 and following. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I, I just love that title. It, it shows the, the everlasting glory of God, you know, the ancient of days, far beyond all of the things we know God was. As Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow in the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Obviously, those are not not just a, a literal count, but it is a picture of a multitude beyond imagining. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I looked and the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is the, the victory over God and it, it parallels all these victories that God has over these kings, that there will be even greater kings who array themselves against God, all the way up to the great king, who the Antichrist, who arrays himself against God. And yet God has victory over them all, as he has had victory over these lesser kings in the time of Daniel. As for um, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In light of all of these earthly kingdoms that are that fall down, they're broken and shattered, and time by time they change over and over. Jerusalem 
falls. The kingdom of Israel falls. The kingdom of the Babylonians falls. The kingdom of the Persians falls. The kingdom that comes afterwards with Alexander falls. The kingdoms that come up after Alexander falls. The great evil kingdoms of this world that rise up, they fall. But there is one who comes like a son of man and is given a dominion and a kingdom that will never fade, will never perish. And of course, we should see the, the connections this has to so many of the prophecies in Isaiah of the one who will have an everlasting dominion. This is a great hopeful promise to a people who are in the midst of suffering, will go through more suffering. And it is an encouragement to us as we look forward to a kingdom whose foundation and creator is God, the everlasting God, the ancient of days. Um, the next thing I want to draw your attention to is the prophecy in uh, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8. It talks about a, a goat um, <clears throat> who rises up with a great horn and is able to destroy so much of the the kingdoms of the time. Then it talks about his horn being broken and four kingdoms rising up after it with a powerful one in the south and a powerful one in the north and the powerful one in the south growing even greater and greater and persecuting uh, the Jews at the time. This um, we don't have time to get into all of the history of it, but if you're familiar with Alexander the Great, he conquers the Persians, forms an expansive kingdom that is massive and huge. He's the, the ram that is pictured here. And when he dies, no successor is able to be found, and his kingdom is split into four kingdoms. And as you dive deeper into the history, so much of this matches the details there. Um, scholar, there are secular scholars who look at this and go, oh, it must be written after the time that all this happened because how could someone predict all of this? Flying in the face of the amazing reality that God definitively <clears throat> foretold so much of what was exactly going to happen. Uh, I found it very uh, interesting. I, a couple of years ago, I picked up a book titled Mosquito. And... I'm starting to read it. I mean, I finally got around being able to read some of it. And he describes in there how mosquitoes and malaria mm. killed Alexander the Great and stopped the conquest of Rome. Um, mosquitoes were a huge influence. They have been throughout history, especially around Rome. That's interesting because what I've read is actually died of an airway disease potentially. But you you just have examples of kings whose grandeur is so far beyond imagining. Right. You know the, the Nebuchadnezzar and the things he does, like if you were to look at all of his accomplishments, 
they're just unbelievable, you know, on the scale of what we operate on in our lives. It's, it's crazy to think of, or in Alexander the Great, and they pass away, you know, whether it is the kings that God sets up in Israel, you know, the kingdoms that end up falling into exile, or the kings that, that, that any king that, kingdom that man is, is the one who is responsible for keeping it going, falls and perishes. And each time we see this happening in scripture and in the world, it should prepare our hearts and peel back our hands from clutching to man strength and anything that man can do so that we rely on the God who establishes a kingdom that is forever. How would you answer the question that is the from generation to generation? Well, why doesn't he go do anything with these despots? Right? That's like that's a, that's a so-called mark against the Christian because you can't answer that properly. Yeah, I think so many questions like that come down to people imagining a, a ridiculous world in which people can do wrong and have no consequences for it. And it just, it, it's a ridiculous idea. It certainly is. Uh, even the, the greatest servant ever preached in the United States, Jonathan Edwards, his basic uh, verse was, you know, in due time their foot will slip. Yeah. It's in God's timing. But it's going to happen. But also, Obviously. but also, too, God is so sovereign, he uses evil and good. Amen. He has power over both. Such that they're all achieving his purposes. So when we talk about the conspiracy of people in Jerusalem who sought to put to death the Lord of glory, these things were done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is the theme of the book of Daniel. The kings come and go, but there's one king who will establish a kingdom forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. common phrase in the Old Testament is he this, the sun will rule with a rod of iron over the nations. And he does. He's, he's ruling right now. I think we lose sight of that sometimes. In the midst of his enemies, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just want to draw quickly our attention to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. Um, I don't still have it memorized, but when I was uh, intern in New York City, we were all tasked to memorize this prayer. And it's, it's very striking. We'll, I'll just touch on a section of it, but um, it, just the language in it is an incredible prayer that we would do well to be shaped in our prayers by. Not Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of your land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. 
To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And it goes on, and it is such a a powerful prayer of confession, that as they sit in suffering for their sin, they realize the, the fleeting nature of the kingdoms of man. And they see the promises of God's everlasting kingdom. What is the proper response? It is to repent. To attest with your words that you are a sinner and that God is righteous. The word confession in the Greek means to speak the same thing. You know, so that with God, we speak the same thing as him. So when he tells us that we are sinners, we say, yes, I'm a sinner. And when he says, I am glorious, we say, yes, you are glorious. And so this prayer of confession is the right action to the great truths that are being presented here. You know, and a prayer of confession is a reliance on the character and person of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your character that is revealed in this book. In this book, as we realize how much greater it is than everything we see in the world around us. May we confess and may we rely on you. May we run with obedience not looking to that which is seen, but to that which is unseen, knowing that you are able to deliver us from every evil, and even if you do not, we will trust your will and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.